By the way, I never walk around my house nude, even when I'm alone in the house. And you know why? Because I'm very self-conscious about being nude in front of my cat. Don't ask me why. <laughs> that I is not am. true. You're doing a bit. I swear. You will never see me nude in my house except when I'm in the shower and then hopefully you don't see me. And part of the reason is that I'm self-conscious being naked in front of my cat. <laughs> this is the Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody. Pardon it. Here's your host, Greg Cody. Hey, all. I've got a confession to make. I hope this doesn't make you think ill of me. My wife has been gone uh, visiting a friend in another state for five days, and it's been great. <laughs> I, uh, oh, my God. I thought you cheated on mom for a second. No. no. It's been great. I uh, I thought you were going to test how little mom listens to this podcast by admitting to cheating on the podcast and seeing <laughs> if it ever got to her. Uh, no, although I, I do question whether she listens to the podcast, or not, which is half the reason I feel free. I feel like I'm in a safe space to play this <laughs> and um, to say this. And I want to emphasize I am happily married. I love my wife. I've never cheated on my wife. I will be very happy to pick her up at the airport. Meantime. Uh, it's been an uncommon and rather refreshing break from marriage. I'm sorry. I said it. I mean, can you guys relate or you're just shaking your heads at me over here? I, I will admit that when I've traveled for work in recent months to Tahoe and to L.A., there is something about having your own like little apartment for three days. And it's just like you can set up everything the way you want it. It's you can decide which of the two queen beds I'm going to put my crap on and which is going to be my sleeping bed. I think it's healthy, right? We're not jerks. Are, yeah. are we in a safe space? Yeah, no, no. It, it's completely fine. My wife will admit the same thing that on, on occasion. And sometimes when I come home, it, it disrupts things too much because they yeah. get into the little routine. We we lived apart for a minute when I was moving to Atlanta for, for a few months. And she'd have the kids on a pretty good schedule and routine. And then I'd come home and kind of wreck it. And I have to make sure I've, you know, it, it, it took some work to get that adjustment right. When my wife goes to her sister's house, it's fun because I can just spend the entire time in the studio or in the garage trying to build something yeah. and like without feeling guilt, like I'm neglect neglecting my family in any way. You could just yeah. walk around the house nude. Why not? I, I do. Greg, how many times have you changed your underwear this week with your wife being gone? Yeah. <laughs> um, a small number, a very small number. Uh, I'm not going to say once. Uh, I'm not that bad, but it is a, a small number. And by the way, I never walk around uh, my house nude even when I'm alone in the house. And you know why? Because I'm very self-conscious about being nude in front of my cat. Don't ask me why. <laughs> that I is just not am. true. You're doing a bit. That's a bit. No, I swear. You will never see me nude in my house except when I'm in the shower and then hopefully you don't see me. And part of the reason is that I'm self-conscious being naked in front of my cat. And before that, in front of my dog, I always imagine the dog and the cat are thinking, Wow, he looks different, but I can't figure out why. Wait, you put on a dad? towel? You put on a towel for your dog and cat? No, I come out with like boxers on. What a great question for Ron McGill. Do animals notice if if they see us naked? That's that is, that a, is good a good question. question. That's an excellent question, which I'll ask him. Uh, by the way, uh, like I have to tell you, you all are listening to the Greg Cody Show with Greg Cody and with Chris Cody and Yeti Blanc. And I want to finish up this uh, wife out of town and I love it story by saying that. I was thinking back and I think the only time we've been apart from each other longer was when I was covering the 1992 Barcelona Olympics 
Christopher, you were five years old. Michael was just a baby. And that's, you know, I think I was gone two or three weeks. Um, but this is like the longest since. And you know what? It's just a little break in the routine. That's all it is. You know, it's a, it's a little variety. <laughs> a little variety. <laughs> but uh, I miss you, dear. <laughs> and I look forward to seeing you. Mix okay. things up when she comes home. <laughs> that's oh. right. A little build up. Maybe. <laughs> How about that? That's what um, every dude thinks. And all the wife is thinking when she comes home is like, I just need to go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's been away. Uh, you remember a, a few weeks ago on the podcast, I mentioned that we'd lost a dear friend who died very unexpectedly and suddenly. And she's visiting the widow, the uh, the woman suffering that loss most closely. And so it's a, it was a tough trip for her to make. And uh, I give her great respect for um doing that uh, yeah. out of friendship. So. And and as I transition back into the show from that, um, it is a little ironic, the segment you're doing around your wife making that type of trip. Why? Because like your wife, like, I don't want to do this. Like, now I feel bad for going here, but you're like celebrate, you're celebrating being away from your wife as she goes to uh, help a friend who is like sh- someone who is now forever, like, you know what I mean? Like it's, right. it's just pretty like, and that you're just sitting here like, this is a great topic to lead with. And then let me close this. <laughs> let me close this topic by saying why my wife is out of town. You could have left it. <laughs> I, you know, it's full transparency here on the GCS. I mean, I wanted to uh, explain why she's out of town. Uh, I'm not chef's happy. Kiss. It's chef's kiss from you. I'm not actually. happy for the reason she left. I'm just um, pleased to have had, uh, an uncommon little uh, pause in our marriage, a little break. I see. You don't even get it. I don't even think you see the irony that I'm talking about. Uh, I really don't. <laughs> you have been no. on a chef's kiss kick this last week. You Three times on this show, at least once during Levitar this week on Cinephile you did. And yeah. here you are already a couple times today. What's up with that? Look at me. That's a, that's a good call out by you. I, it's not good to like have crutches with things like it's good to have things like combining words is a thing. You'll switch want- to you'll switch to power move here. You know that'll be your because you rotate that. You'll go from chef's kiss to power move. You'll talk about different yeah. things that are power moves. That's something yeah. I've noticed. Look at you, God, Yeti. You're like in my soul right now. <laughs> well, Levitard always texts me that I say the word fantastic too much. You do. I think chef's kiss is becoming your fantastic. You do so say you that. say that's fantastic so often. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to be better about it. I'm in therapy. Fantastics Anonymous is where I go. Now I'm, I'm, fr- I'm afraid to say anything now. Tuesday. 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 <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, let's talk about that Levitard show musical. Speaking of uh, Levitard making fun of me using the word fantastic. Christopher, you and I have talked about it a little bit. Yeti, what, uh, what did you think of it? Honestly, you're a musician. Um, you sort of hear it. I feel like Yeti's going to talk for like two months about this. I was, I was going to say, can we take three? Can we make this a three-hour-long episode? <laughs> Give us the Reader's Digest version. You're a musician, Yeti, so I imagine you listen to this while like touching your nipples. A little bit. I, uh, I listened to it five times and tried to take a different approach every time I listened to it. Like just casual fan from the you know. The, the songwriter's perspective, the, you know, the shamateur producer that I am, yeah. you know, try, you know, still very much in learning and trying to trying to learn from it and just, you know, hear what I can pick out and test yeah. my test my ears. So um, I, uh, I l- let me start at the beginning. But yeah, I'll, I'll readers digest it. <laughs> let me start at the beginning. Whenever someone says, let's let me start at the beginning. We're in for a long story, <laughs> especially with me. We know we know my work. Um, but the uh, 
when the first two songs were released, the the pre-release, um, the um, All In and, and Take Me There, I'm not going to pretend that I wasn't a little bit worried. So what JT and Mike did, I just just alone, incredible. You know, yeah. the, the what, how many songs they wrote in the amount of time they did, and so like already a good benefit of the doubt there. Trust Mike's work because he's you know I followed him for so long. Yeah. But when I couldn't tell who was singing All In because everything had to be produced so much, and and I was explaining to your dad last night, I was like, and I'm not even knocking the overproduction. JT was working with people who are not trained singers. Some of them have very little to no natural singing talent. Yeah. And so he had to overproduce it. But I was afraid. I was like, crap. I'm afraid it's going to take some of the personal That's touch. That's true. Like, I, I want to hear my these these radio friends of mine. Right. You know? As opposed you know, to just we've like. We've become friends. But as, as opposed to like three of our voices blended together. And it's just like, who's singing there? Yeah, that, that's okay. But like when the solos are being sang, when yeah. someone's taking the lead on a song, I wanted to be able to feel, oh, that is Billy. And yeah. this is my buddy, Billy, who, you know, I, who's singing and, and he was someone. And, and so I was afraid of that. But the song stuck in my head all week long, especially on Take Me There, the Super Bowl, the, the Super Bowl, Bowl, the Su- Super like, Bowl. <laughs> every time, if I was just walking down the street, like I did the Super Bowl, I was kind of walking <laughs> to that pace. And so I was like, I feel confident still. And and I text, uh, I sent Mike a message a couple days before the release. And I was like, I know you're probably on pins and needles a little bit because it, it means a lot to put something that you've invested so much in, to put it out for the world to hear. I experienced it that last year, and Chris, I've shared with you some of, of my stuff when I released Pirate Radio Anthem. Yeah. Like, it's different to do a show song than something original that you've written and poured yourself into, you know? And so I was like, yeah, I get it. You know, and I said, so I said, if nothing else, regardless of the perception of the crowd, the reception of the crowd, what you did in this short amount of time in terms of being prolific, that's McCartney esque. Like just being able to put out that many songs in that amount of time, but to do it with people who are not trained musicians, really cool. Be proud of that before anything else. We might need to get Yeti. He might need to do an an emergency episode just with the the Greg Cody show talking about this because it doesn't seem like he's. I don't even think we've gotten to chapter one yet. (laughs) No, (laughs) No, that's true. uh, So just yeah, I'm not going to go song by song. That's a whole different thing. That's a whole different episode. Okay, thank you for that. By the way. Unless you just want to talk nonstop about how great my song was, you're allowed to do that. <laughs> you know, I'll stop there because I've, I've got a story about that. So no, you, like, what were your favorite? Like, you can keep going. Like, I'm teasing. I'm just like, you know, just try to keep it under three or four minutes. I was overall, I was very impressed. Your, your dad was asking me last night. He's like, I don't know. He's like, I wonder if the people are going to knock it for being so produced. And I said, the core audience of the show understand that these are not trained musicians they're not experienced musicians even if we found a couple of secret talents you know people who could actually sing pretty good they're not trained and they're not experienced doing this all the time and so I th- the core audience knows that and i think that they'll be fine you know because i typically hate things that are super over auto-tuned but this it didn't bother me at all because everyone was very transparent about it too you know yeah. like i loved on the website hey hey it, coming soon we're still applying more coats of auto-tune yeah that's cool yeah. Like that they were transparent and open and, you know, we knew what we were playing with. So, but all in all, it was, is it was this fun. A back, Dad, is this a backhanded compliment from Yeti? I feel like Yeti, is he, <laughs> did he like the, or is he criticizing this or did he like it? I, I loved it, but, but I can see how you'd get there. There's more that we'll get into if we ever get JT on the show. Um, yeah. he and I've, I've got a lot to talk to him about. We will. We're going to have him on soon. Awesome. 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 <laughs> all right. What, what, what were the three standout songs? Let, let me get to back in my day. Your song, Greg, I was listening to that. I was leaving work. I get out on, on the streets of Atlanta waiting for my bus. 
and I may have done a minimum of two twirls. I definitely <laughs> did some leg kicks, and I may have said, hey. <laughs> leg kicks. Wow. That's not a lie. That's not an exaggeration. Just little. It wasn't major. It wasn't over the top. But I did a couple of little twirls. And I did definitely a leg kick, you know, and with a, hey, maybe a jazz hand. I can't remember if there was a jazz hand in there or not. <laughs> um, but I did it because it was fun. It was the perfect song for you. It was the, That was the perfect uh, style for you to do that um, that topic as well. And it was wonderful. When you started scatting and everything, it was great. I thought it was very uh, well written. I told Mike, uh, you know, as a writer, my inclination is to be, handed a sheet of lyrics and want to fiddle with it and improve it and change it and tweak it. I did very little with those lyrics. I thought it was perfectly uh, written for the song. Yeah. And, uh, very and happy thought, with it. Yeah. And the music that went around the words was, I thought spot on. So uh, kudos to JT for that. Um, uh, sh- let's play a, a snippet of, of my back in my day song from the musical right now. And then when we come out of it, we'll, we'll wrap up our talk about the musical. My favorite part of the the Greg Cody song is when something flies by his head. He's like, watch out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they had me saying some interesting stuff. Uh, Very well written lyrics, I think. Uh, And and I really enjoyed doing that song. I was thrilled to be included. uh, You know, as a how many times have you listened to it? Be honest. Um, Now I've listened to it several times. Uh, but I still listen to it at 1.5, which you probably shouldn't do for what music. What are you doing with mute? Like, God, I want to punch <laughs> you in the face. I, I will admit, I've Greg, Co- I, like, I, I enjoy the musical as well because, like a lot of the people, I was in it, but I didn't hear it until, like, as a whole, until almost the audio. I heard it like an hour before it got released, and right. I also am just like I find a few of the songs just so incredibly catchy. I'm replaying them a lot. Uh, I mean, obviously, and I have a little Greg Cody in me. I, I, I think Goat is is a banger, but L.A. is like for some reason. I just like L.A. might be my other than the one other than Goat. I think L.A. for me is my favorite right now. Okay, I think my two favorite are uh, All In and my own song, uh, <laughs> partly because of the contrast. You know, they couldn't be any more dissimilar, which I like the variety. I haven't picked out my favorite songs yet, but I, I'm one of them that's on the board for sure. I'll get to it in a minute. Um, when I give my, my three, then th- this is what I'll go do. The three biggest surprises for me. Everything else will be safe for JT whenever we talk to him. Okay. A lot of people were surprised by Jessica. I think that's rude and sexist because if they ever listened to her talk, they knew she had done some musicals. Now, she has famously said that she stopped doing them after she got cast as the Grinch. Um, and, uh, and she's been bitter ever since, but I knew she had some experience. Yeah. Um, and when she did a musicals episode with me and Andrew on, yes, maybe no. And, uh, she sang a little bit. And, and so I, I you know, I knew, sorry, so I wasn't super know surprised. Jessica better than most people. Yeti. Jeez. That's what really, that's all he's doing there is he's name yeah. dropping that him and Jessica are kind of cool. If, uh, yeah. He's being hyper verbose as the nurse said, um, <laughs> did you have you gotten to your top three yet or well, here we go here we, i was saying yeah. she was not my biggest surprise right. because i kind of had some history to like know that that she she could probably do okay she could do and she did she knocked it out of the park and we'll, more about that with jt remember so, who remember who uh, uh sends you money 
every month. When <laughs> See, you I'm not surprised by Greg or Chris because I've heard you both sing. But you, you give me a second, Chris, for you. Greg, you're the singing sports writer, you know? So I wasn't surprised at all. I may have been more surprised that you didn't, you know, keel over and die with your, you know, yeah. your breathing situation and your coughing. <laughs> but like, I knew you could do it. And Thank and you. and you and you carried it well with all the pizzazz that you would always bring to that. Kind I was of thing. convinced that my dad was going to get mad about not being included in any other songs but his. <laughs> That's what I thought my dad's complaint was going to be after listening to it. No, not you know, when you yeah. give him his own platform. The thought occurred to me. I'll just put that <laughs> put that out there. Um, um. All right. So number three. All right. You let me know later. I feel if like you want you've some. done a lot of talking before getting to this. Yes. You oh, really yeah. Have. That. Yeah. Because I've loved okay. it so much. Yep. So yeah. Yeah. You, we got another forty-five minutes to go. Right. Um. All right. So number three. Okay. So so you complimented my song, but did not put it in the top three. All right. Let me make a note. Well, of that. this isn't songs. Okay. These are my biggest surprises. Okay. So because I was really surprised, Billy. Yeah. When Billy comes in, when I found out he's the one who's saying on Take Me There, the anything you want. Yeah. Is there anything? Like, because that is such a calming, yes. nice, beautiful yes. little thing. You couldn't like, tell that was Billy? No, I didn't know. I was like, is that Whittingham or did he, is that Cody? I, I couldn't tell. No. And like I said, because, because of the production stuff, once they said it was Billy, now I can hear it completely. Yeah. And then I found out he's the one who's saying all in. I'm like, okay, all right. I was impressed. I think he could maybe actually do some stuff. I'm not sure. Yeah. But he didn't sound like you couldn't hear the jumps in the auto tune with him. Um, you know, you can t- like like I can tell when JT hits the auto tune when he has to right. really hit it hard. And yeah. some of it's just some nice polish, a nice nice little layer. Number 2 is not Chris Cody in general, but it's your uh your like kind of ad-libbing at the end. Um, you hit some stuff. I knew you could sing at least a little bit because you had done it on the Levitard show. time. That one? Yeah, your, your final notes, your outro notes. I was like, oh, okay. Because he didn't auto-tune that. Like, not with the keyboard. He didn't. I, I was saying to the group, and, and we were all doing the thing where we think JT was being really nice to all of us via text. But JT right. told me that he had to do use the least amount of auto-tune with me. Yeah. yeah. He did tell me that. I thought he said you, the same thing to me, but I could be wrong. <laughs> No, but I could tell, like, I can tell when he had to use the keyboard on you. Because some, like, like some he had to use the keyboard. Yeah. And some some people, it wasn't the whole time. It was just a couple of notes. Um, I don't even know what you mean by use the keyboard. But anyway. Yeah, so, so you can auto-tune in a couple of ways. You can you can do it where you tell it what key, and it'll kind of make the notes fit. But if it needs extra correction, you can do it with your keyboard. Like you're a piano keyboard that he's got. Now I get it. So, number one, Dan Levitard. Guys. What? Really? Like, I'm not saying Dan can go out and sing. I feel like he was just Jason Segel and forgetting Sarah Marshall. (laughs) I'm saying his tone, there was this deep emotion there. Like, it it was strange. And, like, his tone is unique. And, I like, I've always liked listening to him speak. But to hear... Like, you know, uh, nothing stops the NFL. Like, yeah, that if is he true. could actually be trained to carry a tune, like his voice would be like really, really yeah. unique and original and good. And, and but like I told Jer- Jeremy Tache and I spoke this morning and I told him, I was like, if Dan would never admit this, but if you told me that the emotion we saw at the beginning of Freedom was just the tip of the iceberg and that his vocal performance in this was every bit of emotion from the send her back chance to today, I'd believe it. That's what I felt. I was like, it made me feel stuff. And like, I didn't get emotional. I cried, but I was like, 
damn, Dan. And I was just I was just really impressed with him and, and, and how what they got out of him. I love how alive you look right now. I know. <laughs> like you look like you like I almost want to kiss you. You look like I'm so, going on three so and a half mo- hours of sleep, too. Yeah. And oh. uh, yeah, yes. I, 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 I no, this was great. I love this recap. I think you've brought like some interesting things. I, I think this is good. Just really impressed. Can't wait to talk to JT about it. Um, great job by everybody. Really happy with the way it turns out, and I'll keep listening to Who it. Who is the worst? There's still more to unpack. Who is the worst? Who is the worst? I mean, it's it's. it's yeah, remember, Dugat, this is on the record. He's the best yeah. because he's the worst. Right? You yeah, know? that's an easy out for you. Whittingham, I, I wish he was more present. There you go. There you go. I, he I did sh- great on his song with Jessica, but I don't know where else he was in the whole thing. He was more the guy that was like, like it was almost like he was the audience. Like he's going around, like we're going here. Oh my, oh guys, we're going to L.A. Like he was almost like the guy the that speaking parts. But I, I was talking more like on the singing. I think he's in the soup. I think that's him. The soup. Oh, you think that's him? I thought it was Dan Bur- or Stu. No, because time. I think that's Jessica and and Witty's song. Yeah, I think that's mm-hmm. that's Jessica. I mean, that's Witty. The Super Bowl, the Super, Super Bowl, Bowl, the Super. I, did, I yeah, I would not. I I really thought that might have been Stu Gotts just kind of lumbering in the background. The Super Bowl, those you know. All right, but yeah, so that that's it for now. <laughs> I love. I just love the passion. That's what I love. Yeah, I feel like um, we should. Um, <laughs> talk about something else other than, the, other than the musical right now you know what we should probably go to a commercial and let yeti put his clothes back on <laughs> okay let's do that hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price priceline it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Look at you. The cool stare. The confident air. The Whittingham hair. And all because you dared to dream big. That's right. You put a Lobo's Mint under your pillow, and the magic ensued, Daddy-O. How can I tell? He'll tell you. The way you own the room in a way that can't be bought. You walked in like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hair strategically dipped below one eye. Your ascot was apricot. Wait, what? What? That's right. The Lobo's Mint has raised the station of many a man and elevated the elegance of women across the land. And all they had to do was put a Lobo's Mint under their pillow and dream. Note, consumer reports found Lobo's Mints were more effective against halitosis when ingested rather than left under a pillow. Lobo's Mints do not guarantee success in fantasy football or a top 10 ranking among national sports columnists. And Lobo's Mints are not a drug or aphrodisiac. They'll freshen your breath, your smile, your very outlook on life. It's your first taste of a dream come true. Lobos Mints. So thrilled to have Lobos Mints as our newest sponsor. 
That is great. Happy for them to be on board. That's a magical pill. I'm going to go out and buy me a tin of those right now. I'll tell you that. <laughs> How about that? No, you're not. Okay. Um, I've been remiss, by the way. We have a great guest on this show, uh, an author of a really interesting book, and I haven't even mentioned him until now. And uh, if he's listening in, which he better be, he's on my podcast. I want to apologize to Gary Pomerantz, the great author, acclaimed New York Times bestselling author. This is the 60th anniversary of Wilt Chamberlain's famous 100-point game. And um, Gary Pomerantz literally wrote the book called Wilt 1962, The Night of 100 Points and the Dawn of a New Era. What's the uh, newspaper that or, you know, publication that is second behind New York Times in terms of most prestige book list to be on? Like, what if you're on the Miami Herald's bestsellers list? I don't know that there is one. Um, I think the New York Times sort of has that market covered. That's uh, some BS. We should come for their stuff. Cause okay. If, like, let's become the Greg Cody show bestsellers list. Okay. All right. Well, our first uh, our first bestseller is this guy who wrote the Wilt book. Nice. And um, very interesting book. We talked to him about a lot more than just that famous game, including uh, Wilt Chamberlain uh, sleeping allegedly with uh, thousands of women. Why don't you tell the audience every question we ask him before no. we do the interview? Nope. No. That's all I'm that's all I'm mentioning. Where would Finns at fifty uh rank on the Greg Cody show bestseller list? Yeah. Um it would rank number two behind the Wilt book only because these are the first two books uh since we created this list. I, li- I like the idea of there being three books on it. The Wilt book, <laughs> the Finns at fifty book, right. and fifty shades of gray. Cause <laughs> just right. cause. Fifty Shades of Greg is more like it. Let's get to <laughs> Gary Pomerance. <laughs> Watch out for the cat. (laughs) Look out. Thank you for joining us. Yes, it's been quite a a 10-day period here. I I uh, haven't talked this much about Wilt since the 50th anniversary. (laughs) (laughs) That's the problem with writing a, a book about an historic event every five or 10 years, it like raises its head again for better or worse. Right. I guess I should just be glad that I didn't write a book about Columbus's arrival. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Let me um, give you about as formal an introduction as we do here on our informal podcast. We're happy to have in uh, Gary Pomerantz, an acclaimed New York times, bestselling author, journalism professor at Stanford. And uh, way back when, a Washington Post sports writer, which I want to talk to him a little bit. But um, Gary, welcome, first of all. Thank you. Great to be on with you. You wrote the book about arguably the most historic single game uh, accomplishment in sports history. The book is called Wilt 1962, The Night of 100 Points and the Dawn of a New Era. And it's 60 years ago, basically. March 2nd, 1962 is when this happened. Uh, You were just a baby. I was just a, a really young kid. I don't remember it. Why did this um, fascinate you enough to write a book about it? When I was a kid in Los Angeles, probably early 70s, let's say, I would watch Will Chamberlain play for the Lakers as an old muscled up guy with a yellow headband, primarily a defensive player, um, shot blocker. And I, I wondered, how did that guy score 100 points in a game. And of course, the answer is it wasn't that guy. It was an earlier version of that guy, a very different version. You know, Wilt at the 100-point game and Hershey was 25 years old, 
260 pounds. He ran the floor like a like a train, and uh, he was he was just setting setting numbers that not only were unprecedented, they were unimagined. I looked up the box score for that game and was pretty amazed to see that in addition to the 100 points, oh, by the way, he had 25 rebounds, which is an astronomical total for rebounds as well. Are you surprised at all? I mean, players are more athletic now. The game is higher scoring now. We've had guys like Michael Jordan and LeBron James, and nobody has repeated this um, 100-point accomplishment. How much does that surprise you, if at all? Well, the game is more athletic, let me say. I'm not sure they're more athletic than Wilt. In fact, I would go so far to say is if you view athleticism purely on the criteria of size, speed, strength, and agility, then the young Chamberlain at 25, 7'1", 260, you know, massive back sloping down to a 31-inch waist, a decathlete, a basketball sensation, that Chamberlain might have been the greatest pure athlete of the 20th century. And if not, he's at least in the conversation. I'm not surprised that no one has scored 100 points because there's got to be a lot of variables that come into play for that to happen. For one thing, the scorer has to have a very healthy ego. He's got to not only you know, want to do it, but on a deeper level need to do it, to, to, to bend a sport, not just a team, the Knicks, but an sp- entire sport to his will. And then you've got to have teammates who are willing accomplices, who are willing to subvert their egos and give up the ball, give up their shots. That doesn't happen very often. Yeah. I think in, in this era of, uh, of three-point domination, it would have been even more likely to happen. And my surprise is even greater because I picture a guy like Steph Curry. If he went out there and told his teammates before the game, you've got to get me 100 points tonight. They would think he's ridiculous. They would laugh, but then they could say, okay, let's try to do it. And in the three-point age, I would think it's remotely possible at least, but um, the fact that it's never been repeated just sort of increases the the mystique of this game. And uh, we're speaking to author Gary Pomerantz, who wrote the book on on this accomplishment, Wilt 1962, The Night of 100 Points and the Dawn of a New Era. Now, he tackled this topic of like I think the best single game performance in any sport. Like I'm trying to think of other sports, what the performance is in other sports. And I'm sure that, you know, Gary along the way might have been thinking like I, I could write another book about another dominating performance. And and I just want to have a pitch for you actually, Gary. Um, <laughs> the amount of Miller lights that my dad killed at my mom's 40th birthday party was a single game performance for the ages. And I just want to know, I want to put that in your, on your radar for you to maybe tackle as your next project. I'm just wondering how many assists you got in that performance. Oh, wow. Yeah. Guy Rogers had 20 for Wilt in Hershey. And I'm just wondering on your mother's 40th, how many you had? <laughs> well, yeah. That, How many uh, beers did you give out, Dad? That's a good question. Yeah, that uh, I don't imagine that would uh, that book would not continue your streak of New York Times bestsellers. Um, he had seven stumbles, I remember. Uh, okay. okay, Gary. One thing about this game, hundred point game, that fascinates me um, were the surroundings for it. The idea that it happened at a neutral site before a very small crowd. Explain why that happened. Well, when you take on the NBA of 1962, you have to put aside all notions of today's game. Today's game's glamour and glitz and these sports palace arenas. Yeah. It wasn't exactly that way in 1962. The NBA was in search of itself. It was somewhat of a lounge act. (laughs) They were trying to develop new fans. 
So there were only nine teams in the league at that time. Only one of those teams west of St. Louis, and that was the Lakers who had moved there a year before. So the league orchestrated it so that they would play, certain, each team would play out of their home arena several times a year in outlying areas. You know, for instance, Boston played a game in Providence and the Cincinnati Royals of Oscar Robertson played a game in Dayton. The Lakers played in San Francisco and Seattle. And that meant that Wilts Philadelphia Warriors played three games that season in Hershey, Pennsylvania, uh, the famous chocolate town, Milton Hershey, right. utopian company town. Right. And, um, you know, the idea that Wilt would go out there and break the NBA record and make what was unquestionably a became, whether it was intended or not, I suspect not, a, a racial statement. And by that, I mean, you know, make no mistake, Wilt's 100-point game and his 50-point a game average that season shattered symbolically the racial quota that NBA owners had, limiting the opportunities for Black players to one or two per team and then three or four. I mean, the NBA would be a white man's enclave no longer. That's a very good point. And, and obviously that's why part of the title of the book is The Dawn of a New Era, because he really did uh, uh, just shatter all kind of ceilings, not to mention all kind of records. Um, now, there's this famous photograph of Wilt in the postgame locker room uh, holding up a, a hand-drawn sign with the, the number 100 on it. Tell the story behind that, because hard as it is to believe, I don't think there were any professional media photographers at that game when it ended, right? So there was one uh, in attendance from the Harrisburg newspaper, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, the state capital being just 13 miles away. But that photographer had a busy schedule that night and left at the end of the first quarter. <laughs> thankfully, <laughs> thankfully for posterity, Paul Vathis of the Associated Press was there. He was off duty. He was there with his 10-year-old son uh, on his son's 10th birthday. This was his gift. And at the end of the third quarter, when Wilt had 69 points, Vathis told his son, you stay here. I'm going outside to the car and get my camera from the trunk. And he did that. He came back in, positioned him himself beneath one of the baskets and got a shot of Wilt scoring on the 100 point dipper dunk, as it's called. He was the great dipper, mm -hmm. big dipper. Uh, so after the game, Bathis went into the locker room and went over to the statistician, Harvey Pollack, who was a part of the Philadelphia Warriors and later the 76ers for about 60 years as a statistician, a publicist, sort of a jack of all trades. And Bathis says to Harvey in the locker room, Harvey, you think Wilt will pose for a picture? And Harvey takes an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and writes 100 on it. One, zero, zero. Says, Wilt, hold this. Wow. And we've all seen that picture. But I would encourage your listeners to go back and study it because there's a lot in it that you might not notice at first take. Wilt is, is wearing one of his good luck rubber bands on his left wrist. Okay. Um, in the background, you can see his trousers and overcoat hanging from hooks on the wall. His knees on this little bench are up in his chest. And he's got this sheepish grin as he holds a piece of paper saying 100. It might be the greatest basketball picture ever taken. And it's not even taken on the court. Yeah, absolutely. And I wonder whatever happened to that piece of paper. <laughs> that I don't know. I mean, that could be like an, an Honus Wagner baseball card that sells at an auction for a ridiculous amount. Now it's an NFT. 
Yeah, that's right. An NFT. Sorry, I'm uh, catching up to technology uh, at every turn. Can we take a second to appreciate and shame this defense, though, for this game? Like, no one talks <laughs> about the defense. Was this a good defense? Was this against, like, the worst defense in the league? Like, like what, what's the deal there? No, it wasn't against the worst defense in the league, but it was against uh, a defense missing an important component. The Knicks had two six-foot, 10-inch centers. They had the rookie, Daryl Imhoff, who won a gold medal with the U.S. Olympic team in 1960 in the Olympics uh, in Rome. And they had another backup center named Phil Jordan, who was six foot 10 and had scored 33 in a game against Wilt earlier that season, held Wilt to 34. Imhoff fouled out with six fouls after playing a total of just 20 minutes. <laughs> Jordan wasn't even there because he had gone out on a late night bender the night before. He's vomiting back at the Hotel Penn Harris in Harrisburg, 13 <laughs> months away. What a great detail. So when, when Imhoff fouls out, that means for 28 of the 48 minutes of the game in Hershey, the tallest player the Knicks had to play against Will was a six foot eight inch rookie named Cleveland Buckner, who was built like a flagpole. Poor Cleveland. Poor Cleveland. He scored 33 points that night, but who remembers? (laughs) Exactly. You know, it, it, I wonder if there was any controversy uh, in, in the wake of that performance, because all it would have taken is the Knicks coach claiming a lack of sportsmanship or, you know, they ran it up on us. Or uh, w- was there any element of controversy because of the 100 point game? You know, it's interesting you bring that up because Will, while playing for Overbrook High School in 1955 in February, had scored 90 points in a game. And his coach, who was only about four or five years older than Wilt, his name Cecil Mosenson, since passed away, told me that he just couldn't do it. He couldn't allow his, his player to score 100 points. And, and the fans are cheering. We want 100. We want 100. Oh, wow. yeah. It was in high, high school, Overbrook against Roxborough. And so he pulls Wilt out with two minutes and 21 seconds. Now, why he said he was worried about rubbing it in, I don't know. The final score was 123 to 21. So here we go again, the Dipper go chasing 100, and um, the Knicks are furious. But nobody really has any idea how many points he's got until about seven minutes to play. When Wilt scores and Harvey Pollack, the statistician, slides a sheet of paper over to the great PA announcer Dave Zinkoff, the Zink. And Zinkoff announces, Wilt Chamberlain, ladies and gentlemen, has just created his own new scoring record. He has 79 points. Meanwhile, Wilt is sinking two more free throws. So now he's up to 81. And as soon as Harvey says this, everyone suddenly has context. There's no big board you can look up, you know, above the court that says number 13, 81 points, you know, three fouls, because all there was no big board. All there was was a hockey metallic little hockey scoreboard that was lucky if it had the right score. But there had to be a sense that this guy was dominating this game. I mean, (laughs) Wilt scored more than 50 points in a game 43 times that season. Oh, okay. Wow. Amazing. You know, having like 69 at the end of the third quarter is just in the upper reaches of his own superior norm. But now when he says Wilt's got 79 points and Wilt's making two more free throws to go to 81, everything intensifies. For the Warriors, it's, it's a sense of curiosity. Can the big fella do it? Right, right. For the Knicks, it's a, particularly the coach, Eddie Donovan, and the all-star guard, Richie Guerin, 
who's a fiery player, a former Marine, they are furious. They are livid for the very reason you said. They right. think they're sportsmanlike. They're rubbing yeah. it in. Yeah. I can't believe they're going to do this or at least try. Wow. Interesting. Um, we're speaking again with uh, Gary Pomerantz, author on the 60th anniversary of this event, author of the book Wilt, 1962, the night of 100 points and the dawn of a new era. Gary, we're going to let you go after a couple more questions. And I could talk to you all day about this because I love the idea of sports history and nostalgia and, and yeah. all the things that this encompasses. First, if it's possible to say, I think his 100 point game has been um, underappreciated uh, because I think at the time it might have been undercovered. There was no ESPN then. What if it had happened today? Can you imagine? Yeah, I mean, if it happened today, there would be, uh, you know, social media would explode. I mean, we'd have tweets from everyone in the arena. We'd have photos on Instagram appearing. It'd just light up social media. And, you know, when Kobe scored 81 points in 2006, 15 minutes after the game ended, you could buy a DVD of it online. Right. So it's a different time. Yeah. Not to be a young whippersnapper about this, but it would be more impressive today because of how guys like Wilt, like you said, Wilt scored 50 points a bunch of times. So he wasn't that far away often, whereas nowadays a good score is 31 points, 32 points. So the gap that these players would be going out of their normal range is more impressive. And I, and I think almost we should do the math on this. I don't want to be that guy, but Kobe scoring 81 with the averages of today is almost more impressive than what Wilt did there. I said it. Well, you said it in the whippersnappers applaud from the distant grandstands. Um, <laughs> you know, today's game is just fantastic. This, the, the, the skill set, the athleticism. Wow. But don't for a minute, young whippersnapper, think that <laughs> Dipper couldn't play and tear it up nowadays. Because if, you know, he was carrying hand weights in his bags, you know, on the roads, he cares about, you know, his body and um, wasn't a drinker, you know. Um, and I think of all the players from the old days, and 1962 certainly would be the old days. I mean, John Glenn orbited the earth 10 days before this game. Um, <laughs> he will, would have no problem fitting in today. But, you know, the question is, is, if someone would score 100 nowadays, what would it take for that to happen? Seems to me it would, re it would require a tall guy, uh, maybe a seven-footer who can shoot threes and free throws, someone in the model of Kevin Durant. Durant. Um, but Durant's only hit 63, I think, to say only. I think and it's got to be Steph Curry hitting 33s in a game. I think that might be it. Maybe so. You know, yeah. I live in San Francisco, and I watch Steph play all the time, and – um, there's never been anything like it with this shooting. Never been anything like it. Right. I, I want to ask Gary how distracting it's been for him to, for me, sliding in and out of the shot, eating a late lunch. I love having you involved with this because, you know, history matters. And I have three kids of my own and they're maybe about your age. And um, we talk about history. You know, for instance, the NBA, the NBA didn't just appear and, you know, have these sports pleasure palaces and, and these TV ratings and, you know, black players weren't given a chance to compete in an open meritocracy and, and the best man wins because of these earlier times. It, we can't assume that this stuff happened or that they, they knew what was to come 
back in 1962. I think it's really important that fans of Joel Embiid know who Will Chamberlain was and what he did. That's a very good point, uh, because I feel like in baseball and football, we all know about the Johnny Unitas's and the Babe Ruth's. But in in the NBA, I think uh, it's it's tougher to get a grasp on the the almost all white NBA of the 50s and 60s. You know, it's almost like if if you weren't alive to watch it, it's almost as if it doesn't exist, sadly. Let me Um, tell the whippersnapper one quick story. So that season. In 1961 62, the big scoring sensation was a rookie named Walt Bellamy mm. for the Chicago Packers. You're going to have to look that one up. And so he's, he's going to average 30 points a game that season. And he comes out uh, in Chicago for his first game against Will for the opening tip. And he extends his hand and says, Hello, Mr. Chamberlain. I'm Walter Bellamy. Wilt extends his hand and says, Hello, Walter. You'll not get a shot off in the first half. <laughs> And the Nipper blocked Bellamy's first nine shots inside the free throw line. Wow. Nine in the first half? Yes. When they come out for the second half tip, which they had back then, Wilt looks at Walt and says, okay, Walter, now you can play. Oh, Oh my God. That is great. scored him 51 to 14 in a Warriors win. That's the kind of guy he was. He sort of, in the stories he told about himself, fused myth and reality. But this much we know he could play. Yeah. I'm going to let you go on, on this final topic because it cannot go without saying, and the reference of myth versus reality uh, is, is the perfect tee up for it. The, the, the idea that Wilt Chamberlain might actually have slept with 20,000 different women. His lawyer at the time, Cy Goldberg famously said, some people collect stamps, Wilt collected women. Can that number possibly be reality? Well, you know, when Wilt died of a heart attack at the age of 63 in 1999, the shorthand summary of his life was two numbers, 20,000 for that myth makers boast um, and, and 100 for the 100 point game. You know, one number we can prove the other, not so much. But, you know, I interviewed one of Wilt's friends and former lovers who was a friend and uh, with him days before he died. And she said she said to Wilt, Wilt, why did you say 20,000 women? And Wilt looked at her and said, what's an extra zero between friends? Oh, that's great. <laughs> and she says to me, now 2,000, I'd believe that. Right. <laughs> yes, that's, that's great. I mean, 2,000 is, is a mighty, mighty admirable number in, in and of itself. But 20,000, I did the math. Uh, even if you give him 45 years of, of sexual activity, um, that's 444 women per year or more than one per day uh, on an average. Look at, look at us parading around Wilt's bedroom, Dad. How many women have you slept with? This is awkward. Uh, what are we doing here? Um, Let's all say it. Gary, how many have you slept with? I'm kidding. Let's not do this. Um, about his boast of sexual conquest. You know, um, it reduced him in his last years to caricature and parody. Because when he was on book tour in 1991, Magic Johnson came out as HIV positive. And so Wilt became, you know, sort of a symbol of the oversexed athlete. Yeah, promiscuity, yeah. He's been gone almost a quarter of a century. And I I think we need to let the smoke of that ridiculous- We're not helping. 
and see him in context. Yeah, yeah we're not helping. That's that's a good point. You're athlete of the 20th century. That's extremely fair on your part. And um, to answer Christopher's question, the number for me is much, much closer to two than 20,000. So we'll leave it at that. Um, Gary Pomerantz, thanks so much for joining us. Check out his book, Wilt 1962, The Night of 100 Points and the Dawn of a New Era. It's a history book in a way because it captures uh, a, a moment in time, a, a, an era in the NBA that's that's long gone and, and ought not be forgotten. So thanks, Gary. Really appreciate it. It's fun to be on. Thanks for having me on. Don't forget about my pitch for my dad in your next book. <laughs> All right. Be well. See you, Gary. Dad, I love you getting into broadcaster mode in these interviews that we do because you do this thing where you feel the need to reset and like in and introduce who the guest is like right. six minutes after. And it's a thing that you would do in radio because with dials and people turning on their cars, like some people are getting in mid conversation. So you want to reset a lot podcast. Nobody stumbles into a podcast like 17 minutes in like, Oh crap. I haven't heard any of this. I'm just 17 <laughs> minutes in. Who am I listening to? Oh, thank God. Greg reset. And he's saying, right. we're talking to Gary from friend, friend, friend. So it's like, right. Pomerantz. Pomerantz. Yeah. But I just laugh at like because I, I know you're doing it with the promo. So like you're weaving those in together, you know, but I, my note for you would be just say his new book, blah, 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 as opposed to saying we're talking to. Right. Blah, blah, blah. OK, well, here in my defense. Um, and after all the times you said it in that interview, I still forgot what his last name was. <laughs> in my defense, I'm a toddler in podcasting. I just turned two. Uh, the, the Greg Cody show debuted March 2nd, 2020. But my point is, it's a pod. You've only been a podcaster. You've never been a radio host. You're just doing that reset. Cause I think maybe you've heard it done on other radio yeah. shows. You know what? Whenever I do that, it makes me sound like a professional, right? It makes me sound like I know what I'm doing and I'm in command of my ship. And that's why when I'm listening to it, I'm like, this is the fourth time he's saying you're okay. listening to Gary Pomerantz. And I'm like that. This is a 20, it's a 20 minute interview. And it's the fourth time you've said you're listening to Gary Pomerantz. Well, part of it is I love the name. You know, Pomerantz sounds like pomegranate. Reminds me of a beautiful, tasty, uh, healthful food. So I enjoy saying it. Um, okay. Can we end this thing? You know what? Before we get out of here and, and thank you all so much uh, for joining us, as always, uh, I, I have to make fun of Wheel of Fortune or more properly, the people on it who couldn't solve the following saying. Oh, wow. This is going to work well on a podcast. They were only missing one letter at the time. The saying was feather in your blank AP. Oh, no. You see, God, you screwed this up. Why? It was just they were missing the it just they just had the A. It was, and they didn't even have all like the, the feather in the like there. It wasn't like there was more than two letters I'm missing. About toward the very end, where they had to solve it toward the very end. I think like yes, like mi- like a minute into this minute thirty video, someone guesses P, and then they finally solve it. But like the why this is a funny thing is because it was clearly feather in in, in your-, your space a space and it was clear like i I, i'm a a dumb dumb and i was like cap obviously and they said they said every possible word that has an a in it that like (laughs) they said ham they didn't but i'm just saying like they they said every variation that they could have except cap it was really funny the guy who solved it i think he probably knew it from the beginning but he bankrupted and lost a turn so that was the (laughs) funniest part is that this poor lady who guessed it three times in a row only got to go three times in a row because these other two guys who clearly probably knew this just kept getting the worst luck. So this dumb, dumb lady <laughs> got 
three chances before other anyone else just because these guys got incredibly unlucky with the spins. And then didn't Sajak uh, come on social media and feel bad for everybody making fun well, of Well, because that's people? with everything. The internet attacks this poor lady. Right. Like, I, I just called her a dumb dumb. See, if I did that, I'd be like, that was a dumb thing. Like, you know, we're all having fun with it. I don't think anyone, like, you know. I, it was I, a comedy of errors. But if, if you're presented with the three words, feather in your blank, you don't even need a clue for that last letter. You don't need to know it was three letters. Feather in your blank. All it can be is cap. Well, she said hat, I think, first. Feather in your hat? Right. I'm trying to think. She guessed twice. Hat, lap, map. She said map. Yeah. Yeah. She just said in your map. That was interesting. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. But she just got rattled. We've all been rattled on the microphone. That's I mean, fair. Yeah. That's fair. Greg can't um, get rattled on the microphone because he's talking too far away from it. Hey, that kind <laughs> of thing. How's this? Is this close enough right now? Am I close enough to the mic? <laughs> um, you know, speaking of, before we leave, uh, speaking of Wheel of Fortune, I don't know why this reminded me of that. Good thing uh, this outro is short. I want to have a live game of uh, Greg Cody show Wordle next week. I want to work up a way to do that. Girdle, Gregor, Greg, Greggle, Girdle. No, no, I've I've called this Girdle where I combine Chris's name or word combining game as portmanteau with um, with Wordle, and I call it Girdle. Girdin it. I like yeah. it. Let's Girdle. do it. So look forward to that next week. Uh, join us again next week. We're going to have a Boffo show, and we'll see you back then. Bye-bye. Happy two years, Greg Cody Show. Thank you. I can't think of a, sour, a sadder tease for an episode. Then next week, I'm going to do a Greg Cody Wordle. I think that's a great tease. <laughs> Man, the people that are putting in their calendars got to listen next week. Are, right, there's literally two people doing it. I, yeah, there's going to be three by the time uh, we get to the next week's show. What? Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that kind of thing. <laughs>